think a lot of people look back at that era and particularly with the emergence of the homogeneous unit principle, I think people see the lesson of the Jesus movement is we need to be relevant as a church and keep pace with the society. But I think there was that wasn't the only thing that was obvious from the Jesus movement. The second um, theme from the Jesus movement, which I think we latched onto at Soul Revival, wasn't let's be relevant, but let's be a community. Because as I've already said, one of the things they did as the Jesus movement was they started Jesus communes. And that uh, deepening of relationship with each other, having strong relationships with Jesus that meant that they had strong committed relationships with each other, I think was what we were actually exploring in Soul Revival in the early 90s. And as Gen Xers, that was a very encouraging way to do ministry for many people. Welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast. We're back for episode three. Stu, how are you? G'day, Joel. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, let's get straight into it. Uh, we were talking last time about how Soul Revival began and you guys were having a paradigm shift where it was changing from a youth group to a peer group, which really seemed to make a big difference. Yep, yep. Kids were wearing Jesus beads and doing a whole lot of other things. What were you guys thinking about doing next? What were you seeing as the, the next step? Yeah, that's a good question. So at the same time as we began Soul Revival, I had the opportunity to study at university and I'd moved from Sydney University doing an undergraduate degree in arts and I did a major in politics and right. really enjoyed that and uh, did okay so that I could uh, do some more study in that area. So I started a PhD in political science. Really? Were you planning to be a New politician? South Wales University. Um, no, I wasn't start planning to be a politician. I didn't want to do that. I was more interested in grassroots movement theory, okay. so not the more formal kind of politics that we think of, but I was really interested in grassroots, like what do everyday people do on the ground? How do people organise their lives? How do they restructure things if they come across problems, stuff like that? So I was really interested in studying uh, movements, grassroots movements like Greenpeace and... Um, different groups like that so what did you learn from doing that well when i started the phd obviously we'd started soul revival and we were trying to come up with some new ways of doing things and i suppose i was also at the same time really interested in why we had got to a point in the church where young people didn't want to go to church anymore and uh, i used to talk to some of my elders at church and they told me that when they were young back in the 50s all the way back there uh they uh they used to have heaps of young people come to church. So, for example, at Guymer Anglican Church, where I used to be at church, where I grew up, in the 1960s and the 1950s, there was like 400 children in the Sunday school. Wow, that's a lot. And so my elders said that, you know, they were Sunday school leaders back in those days and all they needed to do was throw open the doors of the Sunday school and 400 kids had come to Sunday school. So I'm like, okay, so... 20, 30 years ago, there were 400 kids coming to Sunday school and then all these kids were coming to church. What's changed? What happened? And so because I was doing political science, I thought, well, I might look at that politically. So I thought I might go back, turn a few pages backwards in time and, and have a look at what happened in the 1960s. And so I spent a year at uni studying the 1960s and, yeah, it was really interesting and informative. I kind of got a bit of an idea of why we were at a point where teenagers didn't want to come to church anymore because basically a lot of the forms of church we had in the late 1980s were actually forms of church that were developed 
back in the 1970s and so they might have had more traction back in those days but because they hadn't changed in 20 years they were still doing similar things in our context at Grimer Anglican Church and so I think that could have been where there was a bit of a disconnect for a lot of young people. Right and so you're studying the 60s at that time which was such a a huge shift in terms of how life happened for everyone especially in the western western world what did you see from that studying that it was a, um, something came out of that called the jesus movement in a way of how they used that cultural shift to still tell people about jesus how did did that influence how you were starting to think about exactly what we're talking about there in terms of how church was different at that yeah, time and yeah. it was a real disconnect yeah, yeah, that's really that's really helpful because there was a, a movement that started in the 1970s called the Jesus Movement that gave us a lot of the forms of youth group that we had in the late 1980s in our local church even. It was a worldwide movement that had a lot of impact. And the reason it started was because of the changes in the 60s, because the world did change in the 1960s. And what happened, as uh, I can, as far as I can see, is there was a, a really large number of uh, people coming of age in the 60s, a lot of teenagers and young adults who were actually questioning a lot of the values from the past and as a result were developing their own values. And a lot of those values were at odds with the church. Hmm. And so there was a lot of people starting to leave the church in the 1960s. Why were they leaving? Because they, they're, uh, I think like there's such a huge difference in what they were doing. Their parents are like, oh, like we always go to church and that's what we do. But they're like got all this stuff like rock and roll, hippie hippie movement, um, sex, drugs, all that kind of stuff. They were their cultural values were shifting so differently to their parents that they didn't really see it as being relevant to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the irony is that uh, the young people these days have got a saying, OK, boomer, when they want to have a go at an old person. It's really ironic because it was the boomers, the baby boomer generation that was born after the Second World War. Uh, biggest generation that's ever been born in the West, probably. The number of young people that were born when all the ex-servicemen came back from the war and people settled down to have families in the late 1940s and 50s. Uh, those kids of that generation, the baby boomer generation, they became teenagers and young adults in the 60s so you get this huge generation coming forward the boomers who challenged the older people of their day the builders and um, you know there was this sense from the war generation that they wanted to give their kids economic prosperity and they wanted to give them all the things that they hadn't had when they'd grown up in the depression and then went through a war and so you know you see the whole society retooling towards this new prosperous economic prosperity and um at the same time, there was something missing for a lot of young people. So uh, there were new technologies that were creating new ways of living. So a lot of young people were living with different realities. So the, the, the motor car became more mass-produced and more people could have access to a car, so they became more mobile. Um, transistor radios, funnily enough, actually gave young people the opportunity to listen to radio stations that were separate to their parents. So once upon a time, everyone, it's hard to imagine, but everyone used to crowd in the lounge room in a family and listen to the same radio show every day on one radio in the house. But now with a transistor radio, kids could choose their own listening. So they started listening to rock and roll that was emerging in the late 50s and early 60s with um, you know Elvis when he... First, Shaking his hips. Oh, got his hips going. He, he, he was a revolution. And so young people were starting to get into this new rock and roll music, which itself was really rebellious. Um, rock and roll was um, uh, originated in the, in the American South uh, amongst African-American uh, mm -hmm. communities where young African-American 
uh, teenagers had electrified uh, the guitar and started to create this new sound. When the Beatles hit the scene, that was like a seismic quake that went through the West and lots and lots of teenagers really hooked into the Beatles. And these new music bands were singing about new themes that were challenging old ways of thinking. At the same time, the pills invented around this time. And so for the first time now, young women could actually take the pill and they could actually decide for themselves when they wanted to fall pregnant. And so that actually created the sexual revolution. So these new technologies like transistor radio and the pill actually created some of this as well. But there's also a growing discontent for some of the ways that um, the adults were solving problems too. So the whole Vietnam War issue was massive in the 60s. And in the late 60s, the hippies that emerged in the Haight-Ashbury around San Francisco and in Berkeley University, California and places like that, were actually demonstrating and challenging the authorities based on those those big things. Our civil rights became a big issue in the 60s as well, as a lot of young people challenged the uh, segregation in the south of America. And because Australia is so tied to America, then we are actually um, running with some of these same themes in Australia too. So, yeah, so the 60s was a time of questioning, and a lot of the questioning was also aimed at the church. And so the church represented an older generation with older values and so young people that were rejecting values across the board um, from a previous generation also rejected a lot of Christian values too so it was such a seismic shift that in 1966 Time magazine had an article that it published that said God is dead in America and 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 that was that caused a storm even the cover was like really contentious but it was interesting in the article that they actually were looking at this like what's happening in america the young people leaving same things happening around the world happening in australia too and by the late 1960s we've got this situation where young people are finding previous forms of church something that they can't access and so they're not going to church and you mentioned the Jesus movement, and that came about when young Christians who were hippies themselves in San Francisco in America actually decided that instead of just going to church or playing rock and roll, that they'd actually start Christian communes and Christian co coffee houses and play Christian rock and roll music, which again doesn't sound too radical to our modern ears, but in the day it was seismic and it was such a massive thing. There was artists like Larry Norman and Keith Green and Randy Stonehill, cool name. <laughs> and, um, you know, these guys, uh, second chapter of Acts, um, you know, these young artists, these guys and young ladies that were performing this new Christian rock and roll started this thing called the Jesus Movement. And it swept across America so that uh, by 1971, you've got a New Time magazine article cover that's called The Jesus Revolution. And just in a few years, what, Jesus Movement started around 1968. So in about three years in America... 800 communes, according to the article, had popped up right across America so that young Christian hippies could actually travel from New York all the way to San Francisco without paying board because they could keep just <laughs> dropping in on all these Jesus communes. So that was fascinating. But the funny thing about the Jesus movement was that it actually incorporated all the symbols of the hippie movement, but they actually had a Christian message with this very culturally relevant form. And so thousands and thousands of young people came back to the church through the Jesus movement. But instead of going to church, they actually went to these Jesus coffee houses instead. Right. And were they, I remember you in an article writing and saying that it wasn't actually 
people weren't going to church to find the gospel; they were taking the gospel to them. Is that yeah, is that what yeah. they're really trying to do? Yeah. Now, you know, we've got to be careful of having wild generalizations. Like, there's still a lot of young people going to church. There's still a lot of people going to church, but uh, for young, politicized, radical hippies that have another young hippie talking to them about Jesus in in the park um, or sharing uh, a record with them that that they could play it in their own house there was yeah there was this impetus of a connection where young people were able to speak to each other in the language that they understood at the time which was rock and roll yeah and that's always a thing we keep coming up against in terms of talking about shock absorber is uh relevance and that to win young people for christ we need to be relevant to them and all the time but that kind of seems like even when the jesus movement came to australia and it changed a lot of things it still didn't really seem to last very long. Was it another youth ministry cycle that Mark Sender was talking about? Yeah, or did well, look, you miss that one? Yeah, looking looking at that, I think I think obviously we need to speak uh, clearly so that people hear the gospel. And um, one of the things that you know, when we talk about relevance, I think the the big discussion around that is, you know, how do we actually communicate the ancient message of the Bible? to people in a culture that's changed and I, I think uh, you know everyone will remember that we began the series by saying that the, the idea of a shock absorber is that like the church is like a car that's moving through time and when that car hits speed bumps or changes in the road yep. then shock absorbers help it to absorb the shock of the change and we made the point in the first episode that that with this metaphor of the church being like a car driving down the road, the bumps in the road are like big cultural changes that the church finds hard to navigate. So I think the 60s was like a, a massive cultural change. It was like a huge bump in the road. And the Jesus movement was the initial response in many ways of the church to the changes in the 60s. So as if you think about uh, things in Australia, well, back in the 60s, the ministers were still wearing robes in church. They were playing... Um, uh, organs playing hymns in the services there was there was a lot of liturgy and prayer book and yet in the popular culture all around there's rock and roll it's a new music form and so many young people found the disconnect between the hymns of church and the rock and roll music that they were used to in their secular context really jarring what the jesus people did was a, a part of the shock absorber in the the late 60s was that the jesus people used rock and roll to sing about jesus so that there wasn't sacred music that was only hymns that were 400 years old and then secular music people were actually using rock and roll and playing guitars and playing drums and things that young people were used to and singing the same ancient message so the jesus movement in that response created a a really helpful dynamic so that young people could still hear the gospel and uh, engage with it in a, in a way they understood. So yeah, the Jesus movement was like the shock absorber of the '60s, as I look at it. And did it? How much of an effect did it have when it came to Australia as well? Yeah, that's a good question. So the Jesus movement. We've talked a lot about America, but in Australia, the Jesus movement had some really interesting um, um, occurrences. So in Sydney, where we're from, there was a group called Christian Surfers started up, which is a very famous uh, ministry in Australia and still going strong today. So that was a terrific ministry where young Christian surfers started to take the gospel to the beach. And there was Christian communes that started up in Sydney and around Australia as well. Um, a couple in, in, in my mind are the House of the Gentle Bunyip, which was a fun name, and the House of the Purple Door. That was another cool commune. There was a commune called The Addict, and these were places where young Christians lived together and actually shared their faith with each other and reached out to other people. 
Um, when I was doing my PhD, I interviewed a couple of people from that era who were doing these communes in the 70s. One of the guys I interviewed was a guy called Fuzz Kiddo, who was really prominent in the, in the Uniting Church. And Fuzz said that one of the rules in their commune was that they weren't allowed to come home unless they brought a street person with them. Wow. But he said it was so intense because one night he's in his bedroom and he had five street people guys that were living on the street now in his room sleeping in his bedroom yep. and he's like i just can't sustain this this is too heavy so there was a lot of experimenting going on a lot of really exciting things uh talking to john smith from god squad who uh, who was a prominent jesus movement leader in australia he uh he was working within the motorcycle communities and he was really big on environmentalism and thinking about how does the gospel apply to a lot of the environmental issues that new social movements were talking about at the time so the jesus people in australia were just as on the ground and had really similar stuff that was going on to uh, in america okay and so obviously we started this conversation talking about you were started to study this kind of mm. um era how did that how did you fold that back into what you were starting to do with the sorrow bible yeah that's really helpful well the beginning of it was uh, first of all tried to work out what was the impact of the jesus movement on my local church that I'd grown up in. That was right. the first step. And what I came to discover was that when the hippie movement ended, the Jesus movement ended too. But the the implications and the lessons of what the Jesus movement had learnt didn't end. So the leaders of the Jesus movement often came back into the mainstream churches. So, for example, I've already mentioned Fuzz Kiddo. He went into the Uniting Church out of the Jesus movement. There's a guy called John Kitson in the Anglican Church who joined the Anglican Youth Department and brought some of the ideas that they'd been experimenting with in the, in the communes into the church. Now, at the time when the Jesus movement had started, in the local church at Gomer Anglican Church, which was the church I grew up in, in the 60s, they'd still had a format where on Sunday, they the whole church gathered together for the Sabbath. So they began the day together with morning song, and then they ended the day together with even song. And so everybody went to church twice. But That's then in the 70s... unusual for these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, where did, where did that change? Well, in the 70s, when the Jesus movement start coming back into the mainline churches, they come up with this great idea, and they say, well, look, young people, the boomers are questioning the builder's taste in music and the style of music that the two generations have is part of the conflict that they're experiencing in the 60s. I mean, they call the 60s the time of the generation gap where these changes we've talked about were so vast that it was almost like the, there was a war between the generations. Mm -hmm. And so the the compromise that was made by these the, the Jesus people thinkers was from the Anglican youth departments and, and elsewhere, why don't we start playing drums and guitars at church on Sunday night instead of having the organ and the hymns and then Sunday morning the, the oldies can have their traditional service in the morning. So they kind of bring the generation gap into the church. Yep. And so now we start having a traditional service and a contemporary youth service in a local church. Now during the 70s as these Jesus people get older they start getting married and having kids and then when they start having kids they find that it's not really easy to bring your kids to the evening service anymore. So they then decide they're going to start coming back to church in the morning again. So our local church at Guymer Anglican decided to develop a contemporary family service in the morning, keep the traditional service going for the hymns and the prayer book, and then the contemporary service was bringing their rock and roll music into a family context. So now you actually have three generational gaps in the church. And by the time I looked at that, a penny dropped because I realised that my generation, the Gen Xs, who were the children of the baby boomers, we were the first ones to go through this new format that they were calling the homogeneous unit principle. 
And they called it that because a homogeneous unit is let's get people to get together in church in like groups. So instead of everyone coming to church on Sunday morning and being at church for the morning and the evening, let's get the traditional older people together in the traditional service, the families in the family service, and the young people in the young service. The problem with that was that it, unfortunately, I think in my generation, in my context, created a individualism in the church. We were sort of also becoming a bit more consumeristic because we were like, you know, moving in the church from the morning service when we graduated in primary school to the evening service when we were in youth ministry and we actually became more transient within our own church context. So that meant, I think, that the relationships we had with our elders weren't as deep and as strong and as abiding as maybe previous generations had. And what I think we'd stumbled upon in the early 90s was actually a solution to the individualism and the consumerism and the transience that we were experiencing in our generation. The consumerism particularly was a problem because um, it wasn't an intention of the people who set up the homogeneous unit principle. In, some, in fact, in some ways, it was a really good thing because it actually solved a lot of the problems of the generation gap from the 70s. But the other thing that it did is it said to my generation growing up, if you're young, we have a product for you in the church that you can access. If you're a teenager, we have something for you in the church. If you're a young adult, we'll have something for you. If you're a family, we have something for you. So I think a lot of people in my generation started thinking, I'll go to church and go to this uh, former church if it actually suits my needs, if it's actually something that I'm going to get something out of. So if I go to church and there's not a lot of young people my age or I don't like the music or I don't like what this particular church is offering my age group, I think that's created even more transience of people moving from church to church more easily than maybe might have happened in the past. So that's where I think I came to, yeah. Yeah, that was also an outworking of what was happening in secular society at the same time, right? Just the 80s and the 90s was just more and more consumeristic choice so then the church again is trying to keep up with that in a sense but then yeah i think that's a good point actually i hadn't thought of that but yeah we we often talk about the greed in the 80s that was a very greedy era in some ways right yeah Uh, alan bond alan bond (laughs) america's cup (laughs) yeah exactly how did you start you're seeing that happen now how do you try and flip that or how do you try and work against that when you're um just starting Soul Revival and you've, you've noticed that being a peer group is making a big difference to how people are actually getting around the Bible. How did you start from those learnings? How you, What are you doing now in Soul Revival? Yeah, so in the early 90s, I think what we'd stumbled across is that we'd understood that there was a problem of individualism, consumerism and transience and we were trying to say how can we have more of a corporate response so that we you know, have more of a, a group of people working together rather than just being individualistic. Instead of being so consumeristic, what if we became more servant-hearted? And with the transients being a problem at our church, what if a few of us at least stuck around at our church so that we could create more stability? So that's what I think we were doing. And in a, in a funny way, looking back at the 70s Jesus movement, there were really two big themes out of that movement. One of the themes was... Uh, that people saw that they really latched onto was that the Jesus people found a way to communicate to young people in a relevant way. And they, they developed Christian rock and roll as a way of developing in the early stages. I mean, that became less impacting as the decades went on. But in the beginning, Jesus rock was really quite engaging for non-Christians. And so they found a form that was really quite more relevant. Uh, I think a lot of people look back at that era and particularly with the emergence of the homogeneous unit principle, I think people see the lesson of the Jesus movement is we need to be relevant as a church and keep pace with the society. 
but I think there was that wasn't the only thing that was obvious from the Jesus movement. The second um, theme from the Jesus movement, which I think we latched onto at Soul Revival, wasn't let's be relevant, but let's be a community. Because as I've already said, one of the things they did as the Jesus movement was they started Jesus communes. And that uh, deepening of relationship with each other, having strong relationships with Jesus that meant that they had strong committed relationships with each other, I think was what we were actually exploring in Soul Revival in the early 90s. And as Gen Xers, that was a very encouraging way to do ministry for many people. Uh, we were the first generation to experience uh, divorce uh, in a big way because um, no-fault divorce came about with the baby boomer generation and not commenting uh, on that uh, politically but looking at it as, as you see a lot of uh, young people coming to church who are from backgrounds where they've experienced divorce in their family. So coming to a group at Soul Revival where there was a sense of continuity and a sense of, hey, we're a local church where we're a family, that was a really appealing thing for a lot of young people in Generation X. So I think part of the uh, exciting growth of Soul Revival that was, would happen in the next uh, five years after these early days I think part of it was there was a desire for more community and a desire for more relationships and people were looking for a place to belong, I think. And so that's where I think we were able to use what we learned from the Jesus movement. And we captured that actually with one of the symbols from the Jesus movement. We talked about the Jesus beads last week and funnily enough, I actually found out that the, the five colours of the Jesus beads actually came from that era of the Jesus movement. But the other thing that came from it was that one... Uh, one night, Larry Norman was playing a, a concert and he fin finished his concert and he, he got a massive applause from the concert. Everyone was clapping and he felt really uncomfortable about people clapping him. So while they were clapping him, he just raised his hand in the air and pointed his finger to the sky in, in a gesture that's come to be known as the one way. And he pointed a one way to the ceiling. And in other words, he was saying, don't clap me, give glory to God, not me. And as he did it, Apparently, at that very first concert where he did it, everyone one by one stopped clapping and started pointing to the sky too. And so the one way became a symbol of the Jesus movement. Um, at the time, the hippies used to put two fingers in the air to make a peace symbol. And the Jesus movement differentiated itself from their hippie brothers and sisters with a one way rather than the peace symbol and that became a really powerful gesture that reminded them all of who they were they were christians in their generation that they followed jesus and that was one thing that we really latched onto too we thought let's get that going again that'd be fun so uh in a culture where a lot of us surfed and there was a lot of surfing culture and in surfing culture the symbols that people used to do was what's called a shaka where some where a surfer would yep. just sort of um put your hand in the air and if you want to look up what that looks like on Google, you can look up shaka on Google. But Get the emoji. The emoji. Yeah, there's an emoji, shaka <laughs> emoji, that's right. But the one way was um, something that we were doing. So it, it actually gave young people uh, something to latch onto too. And, and so we, um, yeah, we really, I think, took on that theme of the community from the Jesus movement and that was really helpful. I think that's um, something that I've continued to learn from you when you were talking about what you did at Soul Revival and... Um, the reasons you did it was that, that people were always looking for a place to belong, like and regardless of what generation it was, what that's a theme that keeps coming up from what you're talking about, is that people are looking for a place to belong, and Jesus initially provides that place to belong, but then he creates a community, or helps us create a community to be able to bring people into that, yeah. so that's what I feel like you're 
you were starting to latch on to in a big in a big way is that people like regardless of where they're from is looking for somewhere to belong yeah that's really helpful joel because the 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 good thing about that is that jesus is building his church and when and when jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead he reconciles us to god through what he's done and he also reconciles us to each other through yeah. what he's done. And that's in Ephesians. So rather than creating community or building community, we just have to express what Jesus has done. And the interesting thing to, to say in that is, the other thing to say is, while we did do some things that were similar to the Jesus movement, we also did something that was very different. They were actually, I suppose, working within their generation to build community. But something we did that was... Uh, I suppose a throwback to the generation before them was to actually say, let's actually not just be young people in a community anymore. Let's be an all age, all stage, an intergenerational community. And that was something that we could talk about uh, next time, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we'll wrap it up there. But I do remember last time we said get in touch, we didn't tell you how to get in touch. So it's either at Stu Crawshaw, at Joel McMaster, we're on Twitter or Instagram with those ones. Or if you want to send Stu an email, it's Stu at com. But for this evening, we'll say goodbye and see you next time. Thanks, Stu. See you next time. See you, mate.